If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Galatians. While we will be focusing on verses 8 through 10 of the first chapter this morning, we will be reading from verses 6 through verse 10. For those who are in the cinematic world, there is a plot device that's known as a MacGuffin. It's got a very stupid name because it's kind of a silly thing. The point of it is that in certain uh, action movies, and it's typically in action movies, it can be in other movies, but typically in action movies, the MacGuffin is something, and it doesn't matter what it is, that people are striving to get. The protagonists, the good guys, want to get to it before the antagonists and the bad guys get to it. It was given a silly name by Alfred Hitchcock um, because it was something that he often used in his movies to sort of drive action. It's meant to drive a plot forward. Probably the best demonstrations of MacGuffins come in the Indiana Jones movies. Right? And so as he is searching for the Holy Grail or as he is searching for the Ark of the Covenant, it doesn't matter if you care about the Ark of the Covenant. It doesn't matter if you care about the Cup of Christ. It doesn't matter if you know anything about them. As a matter of fact, it makes the movies more enjoyable if you know nothing about either of those two things. But all you care about is Indiana getting to it before the Nazis do. We care about Indiana getting to the Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis do, even if we don't care about the Ark because we care about Indiana Jones. As we have walked through the book of Galatians, we've talked about the the fact that there are kind of three groups that are packed into the book of Galatians. There is our protagonist, our hero, Paul, who is trying to battle against the agitators, the antagonists, the bad guys. And the thing that he is trying to win, the MacGuffin of this particular book, are the Galatians themselves. Paul is seeking to keep the Galatians with him while the agitators are seeking to pull them away. They're sort of stuck in the middle. They are neither lost completely to Paul. Paul doesn't say you have accepted circumcision, but he warns them that if they do, their hearts are are clearly being pulled toward committing circumcision. Their hearts are clearly being pulled away from the gospel, but they have not committed themselves to it yet. So they have distanced themselves from Paul, but they have clearly not gone all the way over to the sides of the agitators. They are standing then in limbo, and Paul is seeking them and calling them back to himself. He is going to do this by various appeals. He will appeal to their hearts. He will appeal to their minds. He will do intellectual arguments and emotive arguments to try and get them to come back to a right standing in the gospel. I think that's a good way to frame what Paul is seeking to do with the Galatians because this is honestly the thing that we are instructed to do out in the world. We are instructed to find and seek after people with the gospel, for the gospel, so that they might know the Lord. While we in our own hearts and minds do seek after God, we also seek after our fellow men so that they might know and come to know our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Redeemer. We are to seek those who are lost. And those of us who are in the Southern Baptist Convention, who give tithes and monies to that convention, know the importance that Southern Baptists have on seeking and saving the lost. We take seriously the fact that Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. He has provided that way of salvation and has given over to us the desire to seek out mankind. So we are evangelists. We take up the mantle of evangelism knowing that we need to take the gospel to people. As we have talked about, the gospel is nothing less than proclamation. We have to tell the gospel 
to people. We do not just think that we are to do this by evangelism, but by also supporting missions worldwide. Southern Baptists are known for this. We might be known for other things that are not quite as nice as this, but we are also known for this. So we understand the call to seek and save the lost. But we live in a world that is very difficult to navigate. And while we go out seeking and saving the lost, there are a number of things that can cloud that, that can muddy the waters, so to speak, that can be interfering with our seeking and saving people to the gospel. Paul, I think, knows about these. And in the verses from 8 to 10 of the first chapter of Galatians, we can read several warnings that Paul gives as to what we are to seek and what we are not to seek. Let us read then Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's holy and precious word. As we've run through, we've come finally to verses 8 through 10. And verse 8 is a fairly shocking verse. Paul calls down the curse of God, an eternal curse, a damnation upon people who would preach other than the gospel. But there's something even more astonishing in this verse than just that, although we will clearly get to that. But there's something even more astonishing here. Many people read Paul's sort of autobiographical parts of the first chapter and even the second chapter as Paul trying to assert his authority. Paul, he is himself an apostle of Jesus Christ and therefore as an apostle, he has the right to tell the Galatians what they should and shouldn't believe. These are not apostles that are coming to them. They are not apostles who are leading them astray. And so many people have read Paul in the very first as asserting his authority over them. But you'll notice something very clear in verse 8. Paul does not announce an anathema on people who stand against him. He doesn't say, if anyone shows up and preaches a gospel contrary to what I have given you, let him be accursed. He does say that. But he includes something very particular in verse 8. If we, meaning Paul himself, if his cohorts, those people that have traveled with him, who do missions with him, even those people, if they should show up, or if Paul himself should come to you and preach against what he had already preached, he has no authority to do that. And Paul says, even I, in that case, should be accursed by God. Paul realizes very clearly that we, are, we should seek to win people to the gospel, not to personalities. We seek to win people to the gospel, not to personalities. Paul isn't claiming authority here. Rather, what Paul is doing is claiming where he got the gospel. 
He got the gospel from God. He has been given the gospel from God. The reason why he calls himself an apostle from God is not to validate himself, but to validate the message. And if even Paul, an apostle, was to go against that message, he himself should be accursed. The Galatians, in other words, cannot be won simply to Paul. Paul doesn't need the Galatians to be one to him. He doesn't need to make little Galatians following him. We read back in the book of 1 Corinthians when divisions have cropped up within the church and people are claiming different apostles as their own. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul knows very well that getting people to follow him is a dereliction of his duties. It is a denial of the gospel. When the Corinthians were doing this, he was dumbfounded. I didn't die for you. You are not called to follow me. You are called to follow the gospel. Even Paul understood that you have to be one to the gospel and not to different personalities. Peter himself, in this book, comes in for attack. He stands condemned in chapter 2. He walks out of the line of truth of the gospel. It is not the fact that he is an apostle that makes him right before the Lord, but the fact that he trusts and believes in the gospel. We cannot be led astray into thinking that we are to follow people. We are to follow the gospel. Paul knows very well how fickle people are. This goes for churches who follow elders. You are not to be little dugs. No matter how many dugs we have as elders, <laughs> you, can't, you can't think that you are just being made into our image. That is not our purpose. And again, that is a dereliction of our duties if that is what's going on. If the personality of the preacher or the personality of the elder overwhelms the importance of the gospel, then he has failed in his duty to make Christians out of you. We know how fickle people are. We know how sinful they are. What happens in churches when pastors who are everything to that church fail morally, die suddenly? That church has nothing to stand on for they have built themselves on nothing but quicksand. And when that foundation is removed, they've got nothing to stand on. Paul knows very well the Galatians cannot stand on him for he will one day depart. Whether it means departing from their very presence or whether it means departing from the world, they will be departed from Paul. What will they stand on? You will only stand on the gospel. Look back through scripture even the great men in Scripture were fallible and rotten. You cannot wait for the right person to show up. You cannot wait to put your trust and your hope in men. You are not one to personalities. There is really good news in this then for us as evangelists as well. You are not trying to get people to buy into you. You're not trying to get people to be won over to you. When you go out, 
you might think, I am, I am slow of speech. I, I don't know how to speak to people very well. I can't argue with people. They're going to ask questions. I'm not going to know the answer to. I'm going to stumble over my words. They're not, they probably don't even like me. You've come up with 18,000 different excuses as to why they're not going to buy into you, but the good news is they're not going to buy into you. If you do your job right, they buy into the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. It is a great quote for preachers, but it's a better quote for everybody. George Whitfield once said, and he was a fantastic preacher, probably one of the greatest preachers that God has ever sent forward on the earth. And he said, there might be men, and actually I think he said there are men, who preach a better gospel or who preach the gospel better than I do. Let's get that right. There are men who preach the gospel better than I do but no one preaches a better gospel than I do. People might do it better, but there is one gospel that they are one to. Do not be overcome with trying to get people to buy into who you are. And friends, you have to, have to guard yourself against buying into one man on this world. No matter how wonderful he speaks, no matter how silver his tongue is, no matter how funny he is, no matter how well the services are laid out, you have to be in a place where you are being won over to the gospel. Secondly, we are to seek to win people to the gospel, not to perdition. Not to perdition. That's a good word. It means damnation or hell. Paul does something that people despise today. He calls down the curse of God upon people who would stand against him. As we have said before, he says in verse 9, Now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed like the land or like the foreign people in the land of Canaan as the people came in, they were destroyed, they were devoted to destruction. Let them be accursed like those objects that we took from their temples and we burned to a crisp. Let them be accursed under fire and under wrath and under penalty. Let them be accursed. People read that and they see, man, just an anger and a wrath from Paul. They think that that is misplaced. You can't talk like that. We, we all have different ways of viewing the truth. Relativism is, in a sense, true. None of us view the truth in the same way. We all come to the truth differently. And therefore, for Paul to claim that he alone is the arbiter of what is true, and if anyone stands against him, to actually ask God to curse them shows that he doesn't actually care about their salvation. He just cares about being right. But we are not seeking to send people to hell. We are not seeking to give them over to perdition, but we are seeking them for the gospel. One of the things that people always mention when they talk about relativism is there's a famous parable from the East. And it has to do with four blind men or five blind men, but we'll use four today. We'll approach an elephant. Only they're blind. They've never seen an elephant before. The first guy walks up and he puts his hand on the elephant's leg and it's thick and it's round and it's rough and he says, this is a tree. The other guy is pawing around on the ground and he puts his hand on top of the elephant's foot and he says, it's flat and it's round and it's rough on top. It's a turtle. Another guy comes up and he, he's feeling out in front of him and he puts his hands on the side of the elephant and he says, it's flat, it's hard and you can't push it over. It's, it's a wall. 
And the fourth guy comes and he feels the trunk and he says, it's long and it's slender. This is a snake. And the point of that is that no one person in our blindness, in our ignorance, can know the total truth about God. And each of us gets a piece of the truth of God. And therefore, for Paul to say something like this is above and beyond the pale. You just cannot talk like this. Paul doesn't know all of the truth. You see, the real problem with that parable is that the elephant in the parable doesn't speak. The elephant in our lives has spoken. He has looked at Paul and he has said, I'm an elephant. And it is not naive, nor is it prideful for Paul to turn around and say, you've got to call the gospel what it is. If Paul didn't know it from God, then yes, it would be arrogant. If Paul put it together on his own, yes, it would be prideful. Yes, it would be naive. But that's not what Paul says has happened. Paul has had the gospel revealed to him. Paul knows the truth of the gospel because the elephant spoke to him and said, I am an elephant. For Paul to say otherwise is to put people in danger and in jeopardy. And that's precisely where the love comes in here. What is Paul supposed to do? These people are not simply dealing with things that are important, but not in the realm of hell and heaven importance. This isn't a matter of conscience for Paul. Paul is clearly able to go into the realm of conscience, to be flexible. But that isn't what Paul is dealing with here. He's not dealing with whether you can drink He's not dealing with whether you can eat meat offered to idols. He's not dealing with matters of the conscience. He's dealing with things that will send people to hell if they believe in them. What should he ask to happen to these people who are dragging people into hell? Anyone who says that Paul is being too rough here, I would say you love falsehood too much and you have no sympathy for the Galatians. The Galatians are being led astray. Paul does this because he's seeking to win people for the gospel, not for perdition. People often talk about fire and brimstone sermons, and they say, people in the South say, they've got a metaphor for this, it's called shuck the corn. No idea what they mean by that. When pastors are really going, they're really flying, spittles coming out of their mouth and they're calling down hell and they're making sure that they're searing sin and they say, he's really shucking the corn. I have no idea what that means. They just say it in the South. It's one of those Southern things. I mean, maybe it's like when you rip open a corn, it's really violent. I don't know what the deal is. But when you hear, when you hear sermons like that where, where a guy's really shucking the corn, he is calling on fire and brimstone, as we would say, on people. There's two distinct ways to do that. There is a way to do that where they are just loving hell. There's a way to do that where they are lavishing hell upon people because they like the thought. They are judgmental, not so much in that they are declaring the judgment of God, but that they like the fact that certain people will go to hell. There are fire and brimstone sermons, though, that are gospel-centered, which are fire and brimstone for precisely the opposite reason, because they want people to know the grace of God. We will read, not only George Whitfield, but we will read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and there has never been a sermon more miscounted than that. It is not God's anger. It is not his wrath. It is not his judgment that is highlighted in that sermon, but it is his mercy. 
It is only by God's good favor that you are not in hell now. That is the point of that sermon. That is the difference between a gospel sermon that preaches fire and brimstone in hell and between a sermon that simply preaches fire and brimstone in hell because the preacher wants to know that there will be people there who will suffer judgment. Paul is not like that. Paul does not desire for people to go to hell. Rather, Paul is seeking to win people for the gospel. Third, let us seek to win people to the gospel, not for our own praise, not for praise. Given this fiery language, Paul asks a rhetorical question which should be very obvious, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Now that I've called God to curse these people, now that I have called down the very eschatological end-time hell upon these people, tell me, am I seeking to win their favor? Am am I seeking to somehow make amends with them? Am I seeking simply the approval of man? The answer to that is most clearly no. For Paul here, there will be no compromise. We shouldn't think that compromise isn't a good thing. Compromise is a good thing. Sometimes we use it in ways that you have compromised yourself and that's bad, but we know as Christians that compromise is often very good. This is kind of the essence that word could be used to apply to a lot of things in Scripture where Paul talks about weak and strong Christians. Those who are strong should not look down upon the weak, but there should be compromise among you. When he deals with the, the issue of meat being eaten that was offered to idols. He, he issues basically a statement that amounts to compromise. When it comes to a number of things, Paul would like to compromise. He is incredibly flexible. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people." that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That is the mark of a man who is flexible. That is the mark of a man who knows how to keep unity by bending on the things that you can bend on. All the more reason, then, to see his inflexible approach here as something that is incredibly important. He will be flexible where he can be flexible. But here, he cannot be flexible. Here, he must seek the approval not of men, but of God. Here, he cannot give an inch because this is the gospel. It is dangerous for us to be inflexible in areas where we should be flexible, and it is even more dangerous for us to think for the applause and the praise of men that we can be flexible where we absolutely cannot be flexible. You are not to go out of your way to offend people. 
You are to be winsome. You are to be kind to them. When you go out and evangelize, while you're not trying to get them to buy into you, it helps if you're not a jerk. Just FYI. You should be kind. You should be compassionate. You should be winsome to them. But make no doubt about it. No matter how kind and how compassionate you are, the gospel will offend people. And you cannot compromise on that. You cannot relinquish that for a moment, lest, lest you give up the gospel in one second of kindness, as you might call it, lest you give it up. 1 Peter 2 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. There is a command for us in the fruit of the Spirit to be joyful and to be kind. It isn't, not only is it not wrong to be kind, it is demanded that we be kind people, that we be joyful people. We should be the kind of people that others want to be around but we cannot compromise on this. This is where we draw the line between pleasing people and pleasing God. We are seeking to win people to the gospel, not the praises of men. One of the most damnable things that people can say about Christians is that they are reasonable everywhere. They're reasonable They don't believe in all that superstitious stuff. They're not inflexible on the points of their doctrine. They they have a wide, big tent. Oh, it's good. We should have a wide, big tent. We should be flexible in a number of different places, but we cannot be flexible on the gospel simply so that people will talk better of us. We cannot do that. There are other people who are incredibly flexible in the world, but gymnasts are by far the most renowned for their flexibility. There's a reason for that. Other people can touch their toes. Other people can even reach past their toes. Other people can do all the flexibility stuff that gymnasts can do. But gymnasts do one thing that they don't do. They supplant that flexibility with a tremendous amount of strength. That is what makes it gorgeous. And that's what makes it impossible for me to do. Not just that I'm not flexible, but that I couldn't do any of that if I wanted to. I could do it once, and then I'd be in traction, and then there's a whole thing. So, but it, it, is, it is the mixture of that flexibility with strength that makes gymnasts who they are. And it is Paul's mixture of flexibility with the rigidity of the gospel that makes him all the more powerful in the sight of men. Let them be astonished that you are flexible everywhere. Let them be astonished that you are willing to compromise when compromise is okay. And let them be more astonished that you are unwilling, out of character it might seem, to to accommodate any other view besides the gospel other than Paul has preached so that they might know the severity and the importance of the gospel. We are to be kind. We are to be reasonable. We are to be able to compromise. We should be winsome. We should be attractive to the world. It is not that these things are unimportant, but it's precisely because they're important that these things become so dangerous. It is easy to fall into these traps. It is easy to think that you are winning people to the gospel because you're kind. It is easy to think that you are winning people to the gospel because you can compromise. 
It is easy to think that people liking us will give us an in for the gospel. Indeed, these things might well be true, but only so far as you are actually bringing the gospel to them. Being winsome and kind and joy-filled is only important for winning people to the gospel as much as you are taking the gospel to them. Being joyful, that's great, good for you. Being kind, that's a good thing. But if you think that that's doing anything for the people out in the world, unless you're taking the gospel to them, it's doing nothing for them. We must be, conf- we must be firm in our convictions in the gospel, firm in its truth, unwilling to flinch before a world that cries out for us to do so, not because we think, not because we feel like we are those who seek the praise of the world, but rather because we seek the praise of God. Friends, love people with all your might, whether they know the Lord or not. Do good by them in every single way you can. Be kind and courteous to them, not just by deeds and emotions, though, but by explaining to them the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ. It is only by that that we will truly love them. If we truly believe that all we have is Christ, then we must make this known out of love to those who have nothing before God. They have no standing, they have no hope, they have no joy. They have no peace. Let us take it to them. And we can only take it to them in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you are kind to us in so many ways. You have given us the gospel. For you are a God that is filled with good news. You have redeemed a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. That there is... No one who gets a higher foot up. There's no one who is closer to you, but all come through the cross of Jesus Christ, whether they be Jew, whether they be Gentile, whether they be free, or whether they are a slave. All come to you only through the cross. That is indeed good news for us. For there are not many who are of noble birth here. Not many of us are wise according to the world. But you have sought to save even those things that are nothing that are unesteemed by the world so that you can show your greatness over all things. Father, that is good news for so many people. I pray that you will equip me and you will equip the people of this congregation to be people who take the good news to the world, who take the good news to all people, not to those who seem morally close to you, but to those who seem far away and to those who seem near to all that they might come and know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, never flinching on the truthfulness of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who would believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We give you great praise for this this day, Father, and ask for your blessings as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.